Friends, we have finished the book of Romans, and that is, to me, amazing that we did it in under two years. And for the rest of the November, we are going to be pulling out a few topics from the last several chapters of the book of Romans. Tonight, we are going to talk about two things in relation to each other, God's sovereignty and disputable matters. And we're going to talk about them in this way, God's sovereignty over disputable matters. God's sovereignty over disputable matters. Uh, the foundation for this message, the text from Romans, is Romans 14.4. And Diane earlier read the larger text in its context. Uh, but this is specifically the verse that I want us to focus on tonight. Paul, remember, Romans 14 is not isolated. We, we never want to isolate verses to make them say what we want out of context or what we would hope they would say. Uh, remember, what's happening in the flow of Romans here in chapter 14 is Paul has uh, clearly and with great depth expounded the gospel, and now he is in its implications towards the church at Rome and specifically uh, towards disputable matters here in 14 and 15. And the issue here in Rome is uh, meat sacrificed to idols. If you remember, Justin preached on this uh, so well, and I would encourage you back in July, July 31st, actually, he preached this message in this text. He did a great job, so go back and listen to it. I'm not going to unpack all the details because he did it so well. So July 31st, Romans uh, 8, I'm sorry, Romans 13, all the way into 14.4, he preached. Uh, so please go back and listen. But the, the issue here is meat sacrifice to idols, and then some Christians would go and, and they would buy this meat at discount price and they would eat it. And some uh, who were Gentiles said, no, 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 that's defiled meat and we can't do that. So we should only eat vegetables so that we can make sure that we don't eat any kind of meat that, that took place during a pagan sacrifice because we would be, in a sense, worshiping these idols. And, and Paul then calls uh, those who are free in their conscience to eat the meat, he calls them strong, believe it or not. Those who are more at liberty to eat the meat, he calls them strong. And those who can't, in conscience, eat the meat, but only eat vegetables, he calls them the weak. But the, the text is encouraging the strong to bear with the failings of the weak and not to cause them to stumble. In other words, uh, take your strongness and humble yourself. Don't impose your conviction upon the other. Rather, bend for the sake of the weaker brother. Bend to their conscience is what basically he's asking them to do. Now he's saying in private, look, eat all the meat you want, sacrifice the idols, but don't impose that upon your brother with a weaker conscience and make them violate what they cannot do in faith. Okay, that's the context here. Now, I, I, I experienced this uh, over the last two weeks here. Uh, as you know, I was in, in Gulu, Uganda. We were doing a pastor's conference. Uh, the conference setting was much like a worship gathering. It was indoors. There was a, a stage and a projector, and there was a lot of scripture. There was singing. There was prayer. It felt like a worship gathering. And uh, so last year when I preached, as I do in this church, I preached with shorts on. Now, none of you have ever had a problem with that, and so I'm assuming it's not a problem for any of you, but little did I know it was a problem for them. And so after the first day preaching, I mean, I, I thought I thoroughly explained the text. There was no issues with my theology. There was no issues with my gospel. There was no issues with me actually poking at some of their uh, don't poke at that-ness. 
one, you know, several people were like, yo, you can't, you cannot preach in shorts. Like that's against God's law, you know? Now that wasn't specifically said, but that's how it was being treated. So my brothers there graciously, Pastor Jimmy and his, his newest elder Moses, they took me to one of the fashion shops and they bought me pants. Now they were from China. And, and so though they said they were like 34 and would fit me, they were more like, they were like shorts, but just not long enough. But my brothers took care of me. And so the next day when I went up to preach, I had the pants on. And my friend Jimmy, who was introducing me, he was like, you got to tell him about the pants. And I was like, should I? He was like, yes, you should. And so I was like, all right, here we go. So the first thing I said was, brothers, I, I understand that I offended some of you by wearing shorts and preaching. And I said, look, I've repented. And I got a, a standing ovation, man. It was awesome. Okay. They were so happy that I had pants on. It was like, I clearly cut the gospel right, you know? I got it right. So for me, and then what I went on to say was very much in, in line with, with the context of Romans 14. It was like, look, brothers, though I don't have a problem preaching in shorts, if that will hinder some of you from engaging with the word of God, and it's going to be so much of a distraction to see my leg hairs, then I will cover them up. Basically, I didn't say it that bluntly with comedy, but I just said, look, I, I don't want to cause anyone issues. I want you to hear and believe and engage the word of God. Okay. Now I'm making it a little bit more comical for you all for entertainment's sake, but that is a real life application of this text that I just experienced last week. It's look, I don't think God cares if we preach in shorts or if we wear shorts to church. God looks at the inward, not the outward. Externals are no longer a thing for God. He's looking at the heart. You could be have the nicest suit on. It could be Gucci and your heart's dirty and foul and you are dirty and foul. You could be all messy on the outside, yet your heart is right with God and you are acceptable and pleasing to him. But for some cultures, friends, they still look at the outward appearance. And for those who are Christians uh, who are seeking to love on another culture, we should accommodate. Make sense? All right. So there's a real life application there. What I want to talk about, though, is when these disputable matters or matters of opinion go south and then there's division. In the larger society that we call Christianity and the smaller uh, society that we call the church, uh, and, and sadly for us over the last two years, not just our church, but for evangelicalism as a whole in America, even the reformed tribe have experienced so many fractures, so many divisions, so many splits, so many people saying, I can't be with you anymore. And, and in fact, I don't even want to look at you anymore. And everything I say about you is going to be negative, whether on Twitter or a book or social media. And that's the world we live in right now. It's, it's a world of fractures. It's a world of divisions. And I want to submit to you that God is sovereign over all of it. Whether in our church or in our personal lives or in the larger tribe of reformed evangelicalism, God is sovereign over all of it. And he is accomplishing his purposes, even though in the moment we can't quite see what he's up to. And so I want to address to you, um, my, my purpose here is to take a 30,000 foot view, okay, way up high, and then look down to help you to understand, to process, and then to rest in the reality of so much conflict, division, and even separation among Christians, okay, over the last two years specifically. And in my view, 
a lot of what we've divided over, a lot of what we've been fighting over, a lot of what we're just stamping our feet, drawing a line in the sand and saying, I, I will not cross and you cannot cross. Uh, it's over these disputable matters. And Justin did a great job when he preached this text of saying like, look, if we don't learn how to, with wisdom, deal with these disputable matters, our church will not survive either. And he's right. And so what I want to say is like, look, that's true. And yes, and amen. Here's a help. And how do we navigate the disputable matters? And my answer is God is sovereign over all of it. All of it. Even people's opinions over disputable matters. So here is uh, the way the CSB, which is my personal devotion version of the Bible, the Christian standard. uh, Here's how it reads it. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Now the context here is in the ESV, it says the servant of another. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Or who are you to judge another's household servant? So the picture here is uh, you are assuming ownership and authority over someone else's servant. Now, in our context, it might be like you, you might have authority over a team of people in your job, but yet you feel like it's your responsibility to take authority over someone else's division, someone else's team, and you are calling shots for them as well. Okay, that's what's happening here. And it's as if the owner of the company is saying like, yo, you got your own team and you got some authority there. Who are you to judge what's going on in this other team that you have no authority over? Now, here's the hard truth. Friends, we are all servants or slaves, do loss, of the high king. And the way that this text is structured is every one of us will answer to that judge and you have no right to act as that judge over other people. Who are you to judge another person's servant? In other words, who are you to judge God's servants? What, who, what does that mean? That means other Christians. In other words, friends, this is a text that says, over disputable matters, stop judging other Christians. Stop. Before his own Lord, he stands or falls, and he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. Or as the ESV says, It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, what this implies is this. We're dealing with genuine Christians here and God is able to and will cause perseverance of his saints. He will cause his saints to remain believing, to remain Christian, and they will one day on judgment day, not for judgment of heaven and hell, but for judgment of reward and well done, good and faithful servant, that judgment, they will be able to stand on that day. Why? Because it's God who is making them stand. They're not standing in and of themselves. They're not standing in their own righteousness. They're not standing in their gifts or accomplishments or skills or abilities or anything else. They're standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit together will cause every Christian who's a true Christian to persevere until that day. What some of us feel the need to do, and I'm, I'm, I think I understand why, and I'll start to unpack that as we, as we do the message. We feel like we need to step in as the judge before that day. And we feel like we need to take some control of other people's lives and of their consciences and of uh, the way they believe about certain things, and we need to regulate. That's what we need to do. And this text is saying, like, yo, realize you're not the judge. And th- these other fellow believers are not your servants. 
They're not going to stand before you on judgment day. And I want to submit to you, that is good news. Like, I don't want an ocean of people standing before me, and now I have to judge them. Do you want that job? Some of you secretly are like, I would like that. I'll take that job. And, and if, if you would like that job, there may be a little bit of a power struggle within you. Like you want to exercise some authority over people and we should do some counseling and dig back into your childhood and see what's going on there. But seriously, you don't want that job. You, you do not want to be the judge of all the earth. And if you remember Abraham, when speaking to the pre-incarnate Jesus, when he was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And what's the answer? Absolutely. Only God is able to judge rightly, understanding the background, uh, the genealogy, all the circumstances surrounding every decision and conviction, what flows out of those convictions and scruples. God is in control of all of it. And yet you have such a limited perspective. I have such a limited perspective. How many of you flown in an airplane? Put your hands high so I can see. Just about everybody. Okay, so on a clear day, when you're high up and the turbulence is gone and the window's open and you can see, you know, cars look like tiny fleas, don't they? And imagine God's perspective. You know, we're, we're just in an airplane on our own planet. God is, in a sense, above all the planets, above all the galaxies, which there are countless. We, we keep finding more and more and more. So we don't actually know how many galaxies there are. Uh, but each one containing billions of stars in and of themselves and billions of planets. And so imagine God's perspective. And he is the one who is sovereignly in control of all the convictions, all of the opinions and whatnot. And so that was all introduction. And now I need to move fast through a lot of texts. Okay. I'm already into the message and we haven't even started. So let's, let's get moving. So I, I thought I had it up here for you, but I don't. Okay, so Romans 14.1 says this. Okay, so this begins Romans 14. If you have a Bible and you want to look, go ahead. It says, for one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. Do not quarrel over opinions. Let me read it again. Romans 14.1. As for the one who is weak in faith, think shorts versus pants. Think meat versus vegetables. Okay. For the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. That's how you should respond to people who see it differently than you. You are to welcome them, not push them away. But not, don't do this, don't quarrel over opinions. And that's what we love to do. It's like, I have a view of this and my view is the right way. And so my job is to convince you that my view is the right way. Now this, this word in the Greek means this, the word opinions, okay? It means this. It means a thought or your inward reasoning, your, your thought process, your inward reasoning. In fact, it's only used 14 times in the New Testament, and here's the way the ESV translates it each time. Opinions, thoughts, thinking, quarreling, argument, disputing doubts, and reasoning. Okay, so you get a flavor for what this word means in the Greek. It's dial, dial, I'm terrible at pronouncing Greek and English. Dialogismos, dialogismos. Pete, did I get it right? No, I didn't. That's all right. (laughs) I don't care. 
It means your inward reasoning specifically surrounding an issue that there is debate over. Now, what we're not talking about here is the deity of Jesus Christ. That's not a debatable issue. As a Christian, you don't get to have an opinion on that. If you think he's not God incarnate, you're not a Christian. It's not a disputable matter. We're talking about things that are not so clear. It's the black and white. And for some of us, we just wish that there were no such thing as disputable matters. We want everything to be black and white so that we know that we're in the right camp, that we've made the right choice. But see, that would not enable you to grow in wisdom, would it? That would not enable you to grow in biblical reasoning. That would not force you to search the scriptures and come to a biblical position. You would just know, all right, I should always wear pants when I preach. That's just how it is. The Bible says it, no debate. It's not how it works. There will always be matters of dispute or argument. There will be matters that Christians doubt over. There will be uh, places where Christians quarrel, and there will be uh, 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 the necessity of reasoning well. Now, friends, here's what that means. When you see that happening, just know that that's a part of God's purposes. Now, I don't like that. I'll be honest with you. I, I am not I used to be the one who, who jumped into the fight or even instigated the fight. I was that person before Christ. And as a new Christian, I love to debate. I would love to verbally get in a scriptural fight with you. I, I would love to debate. I'm not that guy anymore. Okay? I, I, I don't desire to debate. I don't even watch debates really on, online anymore because I just don't get the same joy I used to out of them. What it was for me, I like to win. That's what it was. So at, at a heart level, I just wanted to win. I wanted to be right. And you know what that is? Ungodly. So am I free from that? No, because in the right environment, at the right time, the debater still comes out of me. It happened a little bit during the Q&As while we were doing the Uganda conference. I, I was like, All right, you want to do this right now in front of everybody? Let's do it. You know, and, and I have to be careful that that old Chris does not make its way out. And then I have to repent. So maybe you can do it in a way that honors God, glorifies him, respects and loves the person that you have a, a differing opinion with. But for me, I got to be really careful. I got to be really careful. And so uh, God determined that we would have matters of differing opinions on. So that's the first thing that I think should encourage you. You're going to think differently than other Christians on many, many gray areas. And guess what? That's okay. It's all right. What you need to do is be okay with your position, have it well-reasoned biblically, have scriptural support, and have a defense, if you will, an apologetic for your position. Then keep it to yourself. Unless someone is inviting you into a respectful conversation. But it's not your job to police all the other servants. Hey, you know, I think differently than you on that. And then you go into a 30-minute uh, lecture and they don't even get a word in. That's not how we should be as Christians. You keep your opinion. And then if it's being welcomed that we would have a discussion respectfully and lovingly, let's do that. Okay, that, that's fine. I'm saying, let us not be in the position here where you are judging another servant. Am I making myself clear? Okay, 
Good. Now, what I want to establish from many biblical texts that are not exhaustive, I mean, the Bible is pervasive. Genesis to Revelation, God is sovereign, God is in control, even over the very words that come out of your mouth. I know that makes some of us uncomfortable, but that's what the Bible teaches. There is a tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and the text says you are 100% responsible for your actions and choices, and God is 100% sovereign over your choices and actions. The way I like to say it is, God is sovereign over the free choices of men. Here's one question I would like to ask. Who do you think is more free, God or you? So even though you are free and you do make real choices, God is more free than you. I just, I want you to acknowledge that. It's true. He is more free than you are. And so he is over you. You are not over him. He is not dependent on you. You are dependent on him. You live and move and have your being in him, not the other way around. And so he is the first cause and source of all things. You are 100% dependent. And if you think I'm just reasoning, try not sleeping for four days and see what happens. You will be incoherent, a slobbering mess, and your head will be doing this constantly. You can't even go without sleeping. You are 100% dependent as a creature, and that's how God made it. And we should be okay with that, being a creature. All right. Let's talk about God's sovereignty in many different aspects, and then we'll apply it to opinions or disputable matters. Isaiah 46, 8 to 10, Jesus, well, it's God, it's the Spirit, it's Jesus as the Trinity, speaking through Isaiah in the context of idols, an idol being nothing crafted by human beings, and then uh, the human has to literally lift it onto its stand to worship it. They pray, it doesn't answer. He's Isaiah uh, is mocking idols as opposed to the living God. And then listen what God says about himself. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other, no other gods but this one, Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there is none like me, one God, and there's none like me. Declaring, how is there none like him? I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. In other words, there is nothing that God purposes to do that human beings can thwart. There is nothing that God purposes to do that won't be accomplished. God calls the shots from before the creation of the world and they play out in real time in our lives. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean that we're not secondary causes for the working out of the counsels of God. We are the means to God's will being accomplished. But he is the primary cause and he is the one who declared all of the causes and effects from before the foundation of the world. That's what it says. I declare the end from the beginning. Isaiah 43, 13. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? In other words, there's no one outside of God's control and power that can mess up his plan. No one can turn back his hand or his purposes. 
Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth. In the seas and all deeps or depths. God is even controlling the depths of the sea, all the creatures down there that we can't quite get to because of the pressure. Psalm 115, 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all, all that he pleases. Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Proverbs 19, 21. Well, before we go there, what, what, this is overall God's sovereignty, all those texts we just looked at. And there's many, many, many more we could do. But these texts are a sampling to show that God's will will be accomplished and his purposes will stand and no one can thwart his, his plans. Now, what I want to talk about now, so think of that as overarching God's sovereignty. Now let's get a little closer to home. How about personal plans, like your plans, <laughs> And the plans that you reason through, think through, map out, get counsel on, what you decide to do. What does the Bible say about that? A lot. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man. You got all kinds of plans. But it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Now, here's what that means. You make your plans and you work to accomplish those plans, but whatever comes from those plans, that's God's purpose. And how many of you have had your plans thwarted? All of us, right? Many times, weekly, sometimes daily. And we have to rest in the fact that that's also a part of God's plan. And the deal is we don't understand what's gonna happen within the next 30 minutes or 10. We have no clue what comes next. We, we can generally predict and we make plans, but we have no idea all of the billions of factors that come into reality playing out. In my view, it's amazing any of our plans work out, considering all the factors that need to take place for any of our plans to work. It's amazing. And so whether our plans go through the way we planned, how many of you are serious planners, like down to the... 30 minutes, hour, yeah. Aren't you frustrated a lot? Yeah, you are. I knew it. And here, here's my encouragement for you, okay? Hold your plans loosely. Okay, God, it's your plans that will prevail, and my plans are an open hand. I will plan, I will use wisdom, I will get counsel, I will purpose, but I have an open hand. God, whatever happens, I'm going to take that as your sovereign plan working out versus my sovereign plan working out. Oh, wait, I'm not sovereign. Okay, so, so hold them loosely because this is what the Bible would counsel us. Now, Proverbs 19, 21, many plans are in a person's heart. Amen. But the Lord's decree will prevail. Okay, the Lord's decree. In other words, what he determined from before times eternal, that will prevail. God's plans will work out. And isn't it amazing that sometimes our plans and God's plans coincide? Isn't that kind of amazing? Like, man, me and God planned the same thing. This is awesome. And, and I praise God even when the plans don't work, but the thing, the end, still gets accomplished. Like the means were totally different. We went up over the hill when I wanted to go and drill under the hill, but the, the, the purpose was still accomplished. Here's another one. 
The heart of a man plans his way. I'm plotting a course forward. But the Lord establishes his steps. Now remember, this is a walking culture. The ancient times, you either had an animal or you were walking. And most people were walking. And so think about it. You plan your way, but the steps that you take to get to your destination, they're established by God. Or as the CSB puts it, a person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. In other words, the very path you take to get to your destination will be determined by God. Now, for some of you, this is disturbing. And here's what I want to say to you, who, to, to, to you whom this is disturbing. Let this be a soft pillow to lay your head on. Let these truths give you rest when things aren't going the way you want them to go or the way you've planned them to go. Because often we don't have the wisdom to know the best way forward and we are very limited in our perspective. So if things aren't going according to plan, it is going according to God's plan as hard as God's plan is. And sometimes God's plans are hard for us and we wouldn't choose them if we had the choice. In fact, I'd say 90% of the time we would say, not my plan, but we can rest in the fact that if we're God's children, his plans are good. And he sees the dark parts that will get us through to the light parts. And I think my view is in eternity, we're going to look back at our lives and the way God worked it out so perfectly. And we'll see all the hidden things that were invisible. And we'll be like, oh my gosh, God, you are awesome. And we'll just, we'll be glorifying him for the way that he used even the bad things in our lives. Now, Acts 17 is our next text. This is a familiar one, but think about it in this context, okay? Paul, the apostle, is speaking to the philosophers on Mars Hill. It's Greek culture, Greek philosophy. They were very interested in any kind of new worldview or any kind of new reasoning. And so Paul, being in Athens, sees an altar to an unknown God, and he says, I'm going to make this God known to you. Now, listen the way he describes God and the world and everything in it and our existence in relation to God. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. God has no needs and truly human beings can't serve him. That's the whole thing of in him we live and move and have our being. It's not in uh, us that God lives and moves and has his being. Okay, He himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. Anything we have comes from the hand of God. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So just real quick, a parenthesis. From Adam, he made every ethnicity on the globe. Look what it says. From one man, he made every nation or ethnicity, ethnos, of mankind to live on the face of the earth. What does that mean? That means we're all actually related. That means we're only one race. We're not multiple races. Now we are different ethnicities. We're different uh, nationalities. We come from different parts of the globe, but we trace all of our lineage back to one man. Therefore, we are more alike than we are unlike. We are more together as brothers and sisters than we are divided and splintered into a billion different subcategories. 
And for Christians, that's how we should think about ourselves. We should not let the world determine how we view ourselves as different than others. We should say, no, from one man, we all came. Now, that's, that's not to say we, we should say, oh, well, I'm just colorblind. That's just, we don't recognize distinctions. No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the biblical truth is there's one race and we all find our origin in Adam. And that explains why we're all sinners, right? Because we've all been born after Adam, the man who failed and passed on that failure to every person. And prayerfully, you find yourself in Christ, the second Adam, and his victory is your victory. Okay? One of two Adams, who uh, is your father is the good question here. Now, close parenthesis, having determined and allotted the periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Now that's, that's the text I actually want to highlight there. Listen, every nation of mankind, and what does God do with them? Allots, periods, that's time, and boundaries, that's where you live. Like we live in Pennsylvania, in Pittsburgh, in your little borough or township. That, here's why, they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is not far, actually far from any of us. Look at the CSB again. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries of where they live. Now, what this means is, friends, uh, I've talked to many people who wanted to be born in a different era under a different time. How many of you are that person? Like you long for the good old days whenever the good old days were, perhaps before modern machinery or the internet. If I could just live before the internet, right? If, you, you, here's the deal. God wanted you born now. His purpose is for you now. So don't live in a different era in your head. You were born for now and your job is to serve him in the now. All right. And so God determined where you would live, when you would live, and that's all on purpose. And that's good news. No accidents. Maybe you don't want to live in Pittsburgh. Well, for now, this is where God has you. And my encouragement would be, what does God have for you while you're here? If this is not your final destination. Okay. Figure out what does he have for you to do? How does he want you to serve him? What body of believers does he want you to serve? And then commit and, and do what he wants you to do for the time. Now, another text that's very familiar, Psalm 139. This is David. Uh, and, and here's how David talks about even God wiring, listen, his personality, his gift set. And I would even venture to say his parental uh, origins and his household makeup and all of that is in this text. You formed my inward parts. This is speaking of being in the womb. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret. This is the idea of God crafting a human being inside the womb, carefully and artfully making them. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Now look at this. In your book were written every one of them. Every one of what? The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Hey, what does that mean? That means that while you were in the womb 
And before you even existed, all your days today, written in God's book. Before one of them came to be. So, listen, friends, this is encouraging. That means that everything is on purpose. There is no random events. There is no quote-unquote accidents. You can rest in God's sovereignty over your life because it was already written before any of it played out. God is the great script writer, and we are the actors in the script. And we're not just pawns or robots or, or, or experiments to him. We are children whom he loves. And he has good purposes for us, even though in the midst of the terrible things that do happen, we can't see his good purposes. That's where faith comes in. That's where we have to trust God. You're doing something. I can't yet see what you're doing. Please help me to trust in you. And maybe at some times you're saying, God, help me to hold on to you. And then you realize once you come through, oh, God was holding on to me the whole time. It was not me holding on to him. Oh God, it was you holding on to me. Every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet, there were none of them. Again, the CSB. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Your days, your dwelling, all of it planned by God ahead of time. Now, I like John Frame. He is a, he's a Presbyterian to his fault, but I do appreciate him and I love his systematic theology, and most of what John Frame writes is fantastic. So here's what John Frame writes here uh, about this text, okay? And, and I was greatly helped by his chapter on Providence, part one, in this message. So if you have his systematic theology, go to his Providence section, part one and two. You'll be very encouraged. Listen to what Frame says here. How can such pervasive divine knowledge in our lives not profoundly influence our choices? It is God who has made us inside and out. To make us who we are, he must control our heredity. So he has given us the parents we have and their parents and their parents. And to give us the parents we have, God must control many of their free decisions. It is God who has placed us in our environment, in the situations that require us to make decisions. It is God who decides how long we live, who brings about our success and failures, even though such events usually depend on our free decisions as well as on factors outside of us. And I think that's a right summary of all these texts we just looked at. God is in control and he has determined everything, including your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and so on to make you who you are with all of your convictions and all your differing opinions and all your different views of the world and all your different experiences, God in control of all of them. Okay. Now I want to use, I do have a tiny bit of time. I want to use one example from first century that I think God used for good. And then I want to use one biblical reference for uh, something God used for good. And then it looks like I have four more pages of notes. I'll skip a bit. I'll skip a bit. All right. One example from the first century. 
How many of you have heard of the Essenes? The Essenes in the first century. Okay, a number of you. So three main sects of Judaism at the time of Christ. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, and you have the Essenes. The Pharisees were like the, the moral conservatives. They were very attentive to minutia of the law, dietary, ceremonial, civil calendar law. We're going to obey perfectly, and we're going to set up laws on top of the laws, on top of the laws, on top of the laws, so we make sure we don't break the actual law. That was the Pharisees. And so Jesus said, listen, you, you guys even tithe your dill and your cumin, which are spices, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, mercy, justice, grace. And so they were, they were all caught up in the details of the law. They were like moral conservatives. And then you had the Sadducees, and they were more like political liberals, honestly. They were in bed with Rome. They wanted to hold the power seats. They were usually wealthy and in business. And uh, they did not even believe in the resurrection. And so they certainly were not uh, orthodox in their theology. And often you see these two camps warring with each other in the Gospels, unless they're against Jesus, and then they team up together to fight against Jesus. And that's always interesting. But then you had the Essenes. And the Essenes were more like the Amish. The Essenes were like, I'm out. And so they, they secluded and they were the, if you will come out and be separate to the nth degree. They, uh, in fact, one of their camps uh, migrated to what we know as the Dead Sea region. And now some of you know where I'm going. The Essenes were ascetic pacifists who withdrew to the region of Qumran near the Dead Sea. Now, if you know anything about the Dead Sea, what has been recently found there over the last 50 years? And even recently, that's right, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Good job, Ty. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are ancient manuscripts. In fact, some of the oldest manuscripts we have of the Old Testament and uh, many different writings, even about the ascetic life of the Essenes. We know about them only from uh, historians, Jewish historians and the actual scrolls themselves. And interestingly, when the ancient, most ancient manuscripts we have of the Old Testament were discovered in the Dead Sea, guess what happened to our current manuscripts? They were confirmed. In other words, we had the Bible the whole time. And any, this is what's beautiful, any archaeological find that gets older, it ends up proving that what we have is the real thing. And that's God. Hey, but now, in my imagination, because I'm, I'm more of a cultural engager versus a cultural separatist, I'm like, yo, you guys should not reject refrigeration and the internet, and you should not reject Milwaukee power tools and all that stuff. You, you should engage culture, not only to use it for your benefit, but then to reach people. But to these Essenes and to many, if, if you will, sects of our day, they feel like they need to pull out of culture. And for me, I'm like... I don't have that conviction, but for God's purposes, do your thing. Who am I to judge another man's servant? Now, what God did use was he used them to preserve his word. Where when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, uh, they then actually prior to that in 68 came out for the ascetics in the Dead Sea. They stashed their scrolls in these clay pots and the environment in the caves was just so that it preserved them. And then as you know, the story, a young boy was out playing and he threw a rock and it went into the cave and made this crash sound and he went in and he found 
one of the most expensive archaeological finds in human history. Okay? And, and they're still finding, you realize they just found more scrolls recently because they're continuing to excavate these caves along the Dead Sea. And so God used the Essenes and specifically a sect within the Essenes called the Sons of Light to preserve what we now have as some of the most ancient manuscripts on the planet. And so again, I would judge them and say, you're wrong. Like you shouldn't pull out a culture. You should engage culture. What are you doing? But yet God used them to preserve his word. You see how I was wrong and God was right? All right, here's a biblical one. Many of you know this text. This is Acts 15. And Paul and Barnabas, who were missionary partners, have a dispute. Barnabas, by the way, means son of encouragement. So I think it tells of his personality. Very welcoming, smiley, happy. The guy you want on your side. Paul is about to enter into his second missionary journey. They went the first round and they planted churches. And now the idea is let's go strengthen the churches and plant more. Let's go on another mission trip, Barnabas. After some days, Paul and Barnabas, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So for some reason, we don't know why, but Mark left them on the first missionary journey. He was with them, and for whatever reason, he abandoned them, and Paul and Barnabas continued in traveling throughout the Mediterranean world, planting churches. And there arose a sharp disagreement, a sharp disagreement, Luke records it as, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, interestingly, we find out from Colossians 4.10 that Barnabas actually had a tight connection with Mark. Paul, wrapping up the Colossian letter, greet this person, greet that person. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. So it's his cousin. He's like, yo, Paul, we can't leave my cousin behind, man. And he's like, yo, he left us. What's to say he won't leave us again when we're in trouble? He's like, yo, man, he's my cousin. I can't bail on my cousin. He's my flesh and blood. You know what I'm saying? And Paul's like, no, if we take him, he's a liability. And Barnabas is like, cousin, cousin. You hear what I'm saying? We're taking him. And so it got so sharp. Paul was like, I'm out. And Barnabas was like, fine, I'm out. Mark, John, let's go. Why do you have two first names, by the way? (laughs) That was for free. Concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now, here's what we do know. What we do know is, Mark was used by God, or John, who is called Mark. Why he has two first names, I don't know. He was used by God mightily. Do you know how? He kind of wrote a gospel. The gospel of Mark. That's that Mark. And so Barnabas' cousin was the author of one of the four gospels. And so though Paul thought him not useful, 
Who did? God. Again, so Paul, differing opinion. There there really is no right or wrong. Barnabas said, nah, man, he's good for the work. We just need to encourage him. We just need to support him. We just need to love on him. He'll do better next time. Paul's like, he's a liability, not doing it. All right, well then, I guess I'm gonna have to take him with me and you take Silas with you, okay? And God used that splitting to do what? To reach more people. Instead of one missionary team, how many? Two. Now, I love happy endings. And so in Paul's last letter, this is the one right before he gets beheaded. He says this to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. Timothy, grab Mark for he is useful to me for ministry. And so there was some kind of makeup that happened. Maybe after he wrote the gospel, he was like, all right, you're legit. (laughs) You wrote a gospel. If you're useful to God, you could be useful to me too. (laughs) But again, this is Paul's last letter. This is like his last words to his son in the faith. And and Mark is back in the ministry, obviously. Okay. Now, now what's my point here? My point is to show you that though there are great disagreements, even in scripture, and even though we would have personal disagreements and scruples over people's decisions and, and we would disagree highly, God uses those scruples, those differing opinions, sometimes the literal splitting of ministries that were effective. Paul and Barnabas planting churches all over the Mediterranean, a split. Now listen, when Paul and Barnabas split, I guarantee you the blogs went crazy. The podcasts went nuts. I guarantee it. But they didn't see the end. They were only reporting on the initial news. You see, we have hindsight because we have the canonized scriptures. We know what happened. And here's my encouragement, friends. We, we only have a limited perspective of now. We have no idea what God is doing with our separations in our personal lives, with what God's doing in the larger, if you will, reform tribe. We, we have no idea what he's doing, but he's up to something. And we can believe in faith because of all these texts that we've looked at and these two examples of how it played out that God is doing good even in what we seem to think is bad. God is doing good. He's accomplishing his purposes. One last note and we're done. Romans 14 ends, uh, at least the idea here ends on this note. And this is where I want to end too. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Okay, so so here's the, the summary of the text and the conclusion. Let us not with finality, pass judgment on our brothers and sisters. In differing opinions, in in things that cause arguments, in it could go one way or another, but it's not sin. I don't agree with you. Well, I don't agree with you. Okay. We, We need to have our own opinion. We need to be convinced in our own conscience, and we need to not press that on the other. That's what we need to do. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or... You, why do you despise your brother? And this is what I see much of. It's not just that we pass judgment, but I can't stand you. You're not even a Christian to me. In fact, you might as well die. That's a little extreme, but the way it comes across sometimes, you might as well say it. 
We'd be better off without you. Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now listen where he goes. He's like, look, why do you despise your brother? That means fellow Christian whom Jesus died for. Why do you despise him? Why do you judgment? Don't, don't you understand you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Don't you understand that you're going to have to give an account to God for all of your various opinions and the way you lived your lives and the decisions you made? Isn't that weighty enough that then you want to go and impose on the other? You do realize that the one you despise, you're going to have to answer to God for that. Because even Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John said this, how can you love God whom you've not seen? when you can't even love your brother whom you have seen? It's a good question. But see, it's so hard to love people with differing opinions than us, isn't it? Isn't it? How could you? You feel betrayed. You take it so personal. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself, herself, to God. And this is what I want to end with right here. Friends, be convinced in your own mind over these disputable matters, whether large cultural issues or, or lifestyle choices or whatever the gray area is that you find yourself in disagreement. Often it's, it's methods. Often it's the way you've been brought up. Often it's, well, we don't do it like that. Often it's not very consequential. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it is more weighty. But know that each person is going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And you can rest in, they will stand before God for their decisions. They will not stand before me for their decisions. And then you can rest in the fact that Jesus was judged in your place so that on judgment day, you face an embrace versus a condemning judge. Because listen, if Jesus was judged for you, he will not judge you or sentence you on judgment day. And that's the good news, is that you've already been judged in Christ. Now, as I said earlier, we will be judged for the sake of reward. You rule over this many cities, you rule over that many cities. That's that's in Jesus' parables. So there will be some kind of reward and responsibility given. He was faithful in little, will be faithful over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So there will be an account given for the way we've lived our lives, for our deeds and our words that will result in reward. But friends, if Jesus has already taken your judgment, then you know you are free. Why do you feel the need to be the judge over others? That's the question I want to ask. And I want to just ask you, be free of that. There's freedom and feeling like you don't have to rule over everybody because you actually don't. You can let them do them and you can do you and you can rest in your relationship with God. And if something bothers you, you can pray about it. And if God gives you opportunity to discuss it with someone, discuss it. But as far as you being the judge, it's not your role. Be free yourself from that. Like he doesn't expect you to be. In fact, he says, don't. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that We are free in Christ. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Father, I thank you that though there are multiple 
differing opinions on everything. God, we thank you that we have clarity on how we should navigate disputes, arguments, differing opinions. God, we can entrust our conviction to you and we can allow others to have differing convictions. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom to love each other despite the different convictions that we have. And may we, if we have opportunity to talk about our differing convictions, may we do it with gentleness and respect and love and not as a judge. Father, work in us, I pray. Unify us and God, give us the peace that is in Christ, knowing that he is the judge and we are not. Father, we thank you that you judge Jesus in our place and it's in him that we are free. Our sins are cleansed, our sins are washed, and we are in Christ. We are in good relationship with you. Father, thank you for not judging us, but judging Jesus in our place. And it's in his name we pray. Everyone said, amen.